Okay, welcome to our series of podcasts on the Penelope ad and Photograph 51. Um, there are t- there'll be a total of eight podcasts for the comparative, since there are two texts. Um, the teachers will do the first four, and then the last four, or f- actually maybe there's more than that, the last few will be done by <laughs> students and myself. Um, but we're going to start with a singular text, and I'm joined today with Miss Faulkner. Hello. <laughs> to do... <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it is the last week of term um, well, to do the yeah. Penelope ad by uh, Margaret Atwood. Um, and we're starting with a singular text because I think it's important um, for you as students to make sure that you are familiar with um, what we call a base text to then compare things out from. Um, so in terms of an essay, I would always be, if this was my base text, I would always start my paragraph, something about the Penelope ad, and then bring in photograph 51. Um, and I, I would stick to that because I think um, the Penelope ad is a bit more meaty than Photograph 51. Um, but, you know, Photograph 51 could also be your base text. Yeah, I think what's uh, the strategy you suggest is important because really um, this is a point we came to last year. When you're making a comparison of Photograph 51 and the Penelope ad, you need to be comparing um, the voice of Penelope and Penelope's story and the maid and whatever element you're looking at from photograph 51, because the Penelope ad is really, um, you know, the, the, mul- the narrative perspective is multiple. It's not one story being told by one voice. It's not, um, it is two separate contesting accounts of an event, which is, they are already contesting, right? Because these are characters from the Odyssey. They are figures of myth um, that are referenced in the Odyssey, which is Homer's epic poem. And so this is Atwood giving us the voice of Penelope and imagining uh, a female perspective on these events. And then, but she also very carefully, uh, in the second um, epigraph, gives us the reference to the maids and the fact that there's just this one reference to them, that they're not named, but she needs to also bring their voice into this narrative, into the space to um, give it a more... Um, multiple and equal telling. Mm. And I, I find it interesting in the epigraph that we actually have the later book where we're celebrating Penelope first in terms of an order and then the unnamed maids underneath that. And I think for me that's interesting because that's what we read. We see Penelope's side first and then the maids interject there. And I think one of the things that I, that's really fascinating about this text is the way... Atwood is subverting that traditional male hero because because if you actually read go into Greek mythology, Odysseus is he's conniving, he's calculating. He is. He's the hero of many stories. Uh, he appears in many um, different um, plays and things like that because he has this role as a as a tricker, trickster, mm, tricker. Yeah. I'm losing my words. Sorry, trickster, everyone. Yeah. He's a trickster, and so he is well documented. Um, whereas in the Odyssey, he's well documented his travails, and so she is trying to re rewrite, in a sense, that space and to inscribe it with a female perspective. And I think you know the very first pages of this novel, Penelope talks about the sack of words that they they take with them into the underworld, and the size of your sack is an is an indicator of status. And her sack is quite large, but nearly all the words are about her husband, and so that's the idea of history being very male-centric in the way that it has been recounted and focused for so many years and this is an attempt to revise that history and so that's one of the intersecting points with photograph 51 is that it is a an agenda here to consider it 
from a different perspective and to give it an equal weight. But it's not just Penelope who has these words written about her. And notice, I made a list of the way she's described. She is faithful, flawless, loyal, virtuous, and constant. And what's interesting to me is that she takes these descriptors and to an extent she is trying to... um, hold that reputation through all eternity. She's defending that reputation because it's what she has. And then maids are contesting it because really when they um, are providing their counterpoint after her uh, version of events, they are contesting how faithful she was. They are contesting how virtuous she was. They are contesting whether or not she was really loyal and constant to her husband. Um, And so there are these competing voices even within this representation of a female version of this event that they barely get a footnote in, but that she's warning us atward that there is always more than one story. You have to resist the temptation and the um, to have a singular hero or to believe in any singular version of an event mm. because there you miss the richness of a story and you have to ask yourself, what haven't we heard? Who haven't we heard from? Why haven't we heard from those people? And so it's not just female voices, but it's the marginalised female voices of the maids who don't have names except Melotho of the Pretty Cheeks. She gets a name, but the maids themselves also um, at one stage give voice to the sailors. And so this is not just a novel about gender, it's also about class, not Mm. just about um, male, male history, but also that the only people who were written about and who were worth memorialising in epic poem uh, were those of name, of royal yeah. heritage. And I, I find the other thing I find interesting in the epigraph is that Penelope is described in light of her husband. It's nothing to do with actually her own accomplishments. And I find the thing that really... And one of the things, if you're in my class, you'll soon find out that I quite dislike Penelope half the story. <laughs> um, and my office note that I was like, she becomes quite... She, be, she starts off quite likeable, and I think that's really important in terms of a construction of a character. But as we hear more from the maids, I find it quite unlikable because I think there's an element here of not just about class, but that idea of um, women undermining other women. Yeah, and the she's sisterhood. Doing that, yeah, the sisterhood. And she's doing that from a place of privilege um, and undercutting the women that are actually protecting her. Yeah, and that she actually even uses as her own tools, mm. you know, in the palace. She is surrounded by these girls. And she has chosen them, these girls, mm. to be her serving maids and to bring up her son. She has chosen them from um, the... The, the people around her and she has groomed them and they hold her secrets and she laughs with them and they spin with her and they help her in her secrets and they do her business. They are the emissaries to find out information in the palace in a way that she is not allowed to because of her position. So she uses them and she uses them also because they're pretty. So um, while she is also used, she has more power mm. than the maids and she uses them mm. And then she turns her back on them. She goes to sleep during that rampage. <laughs> and I think, I think one of the, the quotes here from the introduction, and it's a very short introduction from Atwood, the story as told in the Odyssey doesn't hold water. There are too many inconsistencies. I've always, was, I've always been haunted by the hangmaids, and in the Penelope ad, so is Penelope herself. And I think that, to me, is the real, I think, crux of this story is the truth lies somewhere in between these three stories. Yeah, absolutely. You have to choose. You have to You have to hear all of them mm. in order to kind of have any understanding of what may actually have transpired. Did they, they, did they do Ransom last year? They did. This group of students did indeed study so, Ransom. So I think that idea, again, you know, with Ransom about storytelling and that myth-making, and I think that this is another version of that storytelling and myth-making about, you know, what are we actually... 
um, reading and why we're reading mm. and whose versions of events are, are true. Who gets the privileged version? Um, one of the things I said today in my class as we we're exiting because the last week is about the performative nature of the Penelope ad. You know, she she starts off, the narrator is her and she's telling the story. But to me, Atwood has written this in a quite, a, like I've it's picked a monologue, it. Really, it is a monologue. It? It's a very long monologue. And, um, and it's broken up by this chorus of maids. And I think one of the things to note is the form the maids take. Now, they start off with a children's nursery the rhyme. The jump rope rhyme. And I think that speaks to that oral tradition of um, storytelling and music making. And it goes all the way down to, and please correct me if I'm wrong, um, the court scene, which is quite public and almost reality TV-like. Yeah, as videotaped by the maids, the chorus line, the trial of Odysseus. And before that, there's the anthropology lecture, Mm. so in which they take a completely different form again. And it's a little bit like they have to, in order to be heard, you know, they're kind of breaking Mm. this, breaking through all the time. Mm. And they're they're vaudeville and they're resorting to whatever um, forms are expected across time to gain a Attention. Um, but also, I think that their stories is, and I don't want to lead the kids astray here, but just to kind of understand the text, breaking the form and breaking through time. For me, to for an author to do that, also suggests that their story, their story, whatever it may represent and symbolise, has not ended and yeah, is ending. The, yeah. it, it, it is always recurring through time. And it's actually the woman that has the most power that can actually kind of keep, because she doesn't have to change a form. Penelope is on the stage in the monologue and she's constant. I mean, she has that up. I have this is something new for me in last year. (laughs) So I think that's quite interesting that she's constant and she's saying this monologue in the underworld and she has that access to us. Whereas the maids, in order to have access to us, they are going into forms that humans are are having to and they are having to entertain us too, Mm. right? Like Penelope keeps us um, engaged by whether you like her tone or not. She is she is witty and she is sarcastic and she is dark but she's you know she's funny and she self-deprecates at time and she gossips about Helen and um, we begin to distrust her at a particular point but she is an engaging storyteller even though she says it's a low art she is good at this because really she's very much like her husband who is also very good at telling stories um, and I th- to pick up on what you said about the three time the reality is here she is still telling this story um, and it's very consciously moved forward in the, the references to what is clearly the internet and television and the idea that um, people consult the dead in a different way now and for different purposes than they used to, but we are still interested in the stories of the dead and the stories of the past because they offer us ways of behaving and moral lessons. And I think on the second page of her story, she says... Um, Hadn't I been faithful? Hadn't I waited and waited and waited despite the temptation, almost the compulsion to do otherwise? And what did I amount to once the official version gained ground? An edifying legend, a stick used to beat other, other women with. Why couldn't they be as considered, as trustworthy, as all suffering as I had been? That was the line they took, the singers, the yarn spinners. Don't follow my example, I want to scream in your ears. Yes, yours. And so I think here is her bind in that... She is known to be faithful, flawless, loyal, virtuous, constant. This is her legend. This is, these are the, the way she has been favourably portrayed. She has issue with that. She wants to be more. But she, she's prepared to let the maids die to uphold those things too because it's when they have perhaps the knowledge that she has not been faithful and loyal and constant that she has to let them die. They have other information. So she's prepared to let other women die to uphold the only 
way she can be spoken about, which mm. is through her virtuous glory. And, and so she's in a bind, you know. She does. She goes through the what's the nanny? What's the nurse's maid? Um, the one beginning with E. Euryclea. Euryclea. You know, she throws her under the bus. She throws her cousin Helen, and Helen yeah. is my favorite character. <laughs> Because Helen is unforgiving and she's like, I am what I am. Don't, you know, that moment where she says, don't be so, you're not as innocent as you say you are. Um, and she's calling Penelope out. And I think that's where the, one of the turns that happens in the book is that we start to unpack and, un- and start seeing that Penelope is not as virtuous as mm. we once thought. And she's she, also self-serving. And there's a bit of an uncertain voice, especially when it comes to when he comes home, about the kind of order of events and why they happened. And I think it's really, um, if I was you as a student, it's kind of picking up on that language and tonal shift she has in sort of narrating that tone. And um, I did talk about that chorus, just as um, the the maids, that in the, after, in the notes section of mm. this, um, Atwood does say she's referencing um, the Greek chorus. Um, and I'm just pulling this one out as well because she mentions the... Um, this is from Jade last year, the Artemis cult. Yeah. <laughs> and it is here that it, um, I owe the theory of Penelope as a possible female goddess cult leader, which I was a bit unaware of. The anthropology lecture really takes that yeah. idea and it is, is an attempt, a very, uh, I think it's a very um, specious, uh, not specious is the wrong word, but Atwood has a very particular audience in mind. When she writes that chapter where here are the maids now attempting to cut through into this very academic sphere um, the, a completely different possibility. So they're, they're saying that even in this era where there are um, certainly supposed to be attitudinal shifts in our perception of history, to try and completely disrupt that idea and say, hey, what if this, hey, what if this whole thing isn't actually a story about men? What if this isn't actually, Odysseus isn't the most important figure in this story? What if actually the women, what if actually this is a fertility cult? What if actually this whole story was female-centred is too radical for the anthropologists mm. themselves. They, they still don't get cut through. So I think she's saying there's still a really long way mm. to go with that shift. And so when she says, don't, I want to scream in your ears, don't be like me, she, uh, what is the don't be like me part? Is the don't be like me, don't, um, don't trust your husband? Is the don't be like me, um, don't be drawn into the competition that is set up between women by society, by patriarchal society, for women to compete for male attention on the basis of their their beauty what is the don't be like me part and I think that's mm. a really interesting part for Penelope is it that you th- if is it the don't be loyal and constant <laughs> don't don't um, waste your life wishing that you were other than who you are mm. what is the question she's asking you that is true and I think one of the things that I think you, we're doing this intro podcast and not going I think not as in-depth into the story, is that what we want you to take away is to find a lens to read this story with. Because to be successful at the comparative in the early stages is to know the text well. And if you are going to come into class next term after your analysing argument sack and you can start talking about the way Penelope portrays herself as a myth and also as the truth of the story then that is an in that we can start working with when we start looking at Photograph 51. Um, Or if you're looking at, okay, Penelope's in it for the fame and you're looking for all the quotes about how she makes herself look elevated above the maids, that is also an in. So I think this podcast hopefully is giving you some angles to sort of look at and read the text over the holidays 
um, and you, when you're making the notes, because I think we're not going to be really looking at that comparative until a bit more into term three. Um, and we'd rather you know your text individually so then we can start making the connections together. Yeah, and because it's comparative, you know, you need to find the areas of overlap and not allow yourself to get too distracted by or to follow something that's really tangential because you need to be able to write to sustain extended discussion about an area of significant overlap. So that kind of narrows down mm. quite, a, you know, some of the concerns in the photograph 51 are not in in this particular text. And the Penelope ad is very clear in its agenda, I think, um, to reconsider history and to also think about who gets to tell the story. And that's an important overlap with Photograph 51. Who is telling this story? Why are they telling the story? What is their agenda? And what is the author's agenda? Because they are not the same thing. Mm. And to have some understanding of that, how the, the male characters in Photograph 51 tell the story and how the maids in this play, uh, play I say, because it feels like a play, uh, in this novel tell the story and they have different purposes in, in that and it's to do with how much agency they have in a sense um, as well. So I think that if you keep asking yourself why, why, why is Atwood telling us this story mm. in the way that she is and why is Penelope telling us a story and why are the maids telling us a story? Mm. What is the, the different agendas there? At the end of the day, the task is comparing those big ideas and issues. We, they, the, from our understanding when we have Karen Graham come and talk to us is that they're not looking for the intricate mm. details of much, like you do for much ado what we're looking at here are the bigger issues and ideas and how the two texts sort of speak to each other around that and how the two authors, and, um, and I guess we'll talk, we'll do a whole nother podcast about the comparative, <laughs> but about how those two things are highlighted when you read the text side by side. But that comes a bit later. Um, so I think, you know, this podcast is short. Um, I'm not too sure if you have anything more else to say, Miss Faulkner. I think we've orienteered them no, in well, some ways. I think ways. we have. I've had a look at my notes to myself, which was the epigraphs, the contents page, which is for you to have a sense of the structure and how those um, how the maids interjections are formed. We've talked about form, um, and I know Dr. Shaw will probably talk about envoi. Um, the only other thing that I have here is to say that I think that Atwood is claiming space in the narrative for the marginalised voices, um, and I wanted you to note that the um, in the sea shanty. The maids don sailor costumes and they also imagine the perspective, uh, a moment in the Odyssey from the perspective mm. of the sailors who are also men of no class and no name um, who, are, who die because of Odysseus' choices. Mm. And so they don't only represent marginalised female voices, they are also marginalised men at one stage. Mm, that's true. So and there is a male voice that they um, introduce there. An activity I asked my class to do last year is track the stories of the maids. You can make a whole new visual diagram and then track that against what Penelope is saying. So you might want to visualize that for yourself and I would do that I would visualize this text and break it down um, as much as possible but I think I'm just going to echo what I said before find your lens for this play and I mean for this sorry for I've this led you novel. astray it's not a play it has features of a play because it, it has a chorus and it has a clear monologue voice where, the, where Penelope is addressing us she's addressing us all the way through it is an intimate relationship she's trying to forge with us and there's an element of conspiracy she's asking us to enter into as well. Know, she is tricking us. She is luring us in just as Odysseus lures her in. Why is she luring you in? Because um, fun fact is that she does, this, is act, this becomes a play. She actually writes a play after this. Really? She, 
because um, after writing this, she realised that, that it's better to than write the with a play. <laughs> yes. Um, so I think those are things for the novel. Um, enjoy the read. You should read it at least twice. It is a quick read. It is. Um, and then do those visual diagram things. My class, I said I'm going to do photograph 51 in class. So we and then, but I expect mine. For all those listening from Mr. Wound's class, I expect you to be an expert in the Penelope ad when we return. Me also. And Miss Faulkner's class. And course. we know Actually, these texts quite well now, so don't. We shouldn't be the experts on these texts, also, because we're not writing on them in the exam. Just, a, just a reminder. That's very true. If we know these texts better than you, there is a problem. Mm-hmm. That's true. All right. Hopefully, that's be help has um, been helpful, and also feel free to do your own research into the Greek myths, the myth of the underworld, and we look forward to having these discussions in class. In real life.